From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and we've been here in my office in the Cambridge Politics Department for the past three months trying to make sense of this election. We'll be here for a few weeks more because there's still plenty to talk about. Now we know the result. It's been a shock to all of us, though I think more of a shock to some than to others. This week I'm joined by the former Coalition Cabinet member Chris Hume. We booked him to speak when we thought he'd be talking to us about how to put together a coalition. Instead, I found myself talking to him about the catastrophe that's overtaken his party and what prospects he sees for serious opposition to Conservative rule. The opposition could come from all sorts of unexpected places and if it does look as if the government is really playing fast and loose with our European Union membership, then part of the opposition is likely to come from within the Conservative coalition, which is business. And what can be done to undo the mistakes of the past five years? I also caught up with a few guests from the past 13 weeks of podcasts last Friday to discover what they thought of the previous night's results. It was early in the morning and some of them were still pretty emotional. Stay with us to hear what they had to say. First, our regular panel. Helen Thompson, an expert on economics, Finbar Livesey on public policy and Chris Brooke on political theory. I'll start with Helen, who called it right last week and has consistently said that she didn't believe the British public would choose Ed Miliband to be its Prime Minister. Helen, now we know just how right you were about that, what else do you think this election has taught us about the preferences of the British electorate? Well, I think the first thing to say is is that it doesn't really make sense any longer to talk about the preferences of the British electorate. There are effectively three different elections that went on with apologies to Northern Ireland. And we particularly need to think, obviously, about the preferences of the Scottish electorate and the preferences of the English electorate. On the case of the Scottish electorate, what we learned is is that Scottish voters voted for more Scottish influence at Westminster. The first thing we learned in that context is is that non-Labour England voted itself English votes for English laws in response to what was going on in Scotland. I think if you then ask the question, what is it that meant that the Conservative Party was more popular than the Labour Party in England, what we learnt is something that's been true about English politics for a long time, is that most English voters prefer a certain kind of leader, which Ed Miliband doesn't meet the criterion for, ones who are less intense, less awkward than Miliband and less abstract. And also we learn that they trust, or at least that they distrust, economic promises that seem to them to risk what they have at the moment. They're not so much looking forward to economic change that they're concerned to hold on to what they have in times of economic insecurity. And the problem with the Labour message, I think, was that it didn't acknowledge the fear that many people have about what would happen to their living standards under a Labour government. So, Finbar, you did say on an earlier podcast, and I hate to remind you of this, that it was impossible, more or less, for the Tories to win an overall majority in this election. I'm assuming, therefore, that this result has surprised you. What has most surprised you about it? (laughs) Surprise is an understatement. The exit poll came out and suddenly the whole tenor of the election changed. What surprised me most was that people like myself who trusted the polls were awfully led astray because the polls were so horribly, horribly wrong. Um, What really surprises me, though, is we're seeing, again, such a strong shift on the fact that all of the parties, bar the Liberal Democrats, increased their vote share. The Conservatives have done incredibly well at targeting. They've had a small increase in their vote, but it's had a massive impact on what's happened to their seat share. And so, again, this it's, it's an obvious thing to say, but it shows, again, just how fickle the first-past-the-post system is. And if you really understand the system, as the Conservatives appear to do, you can really run a very effective campaign. Because we did touch on this a little bit last week, and maybe we should have said more about it. I thought about it when I heard Shirley Williams, the former member of the SDP now in the Liberal Democrat camp, say in an interview after the result that from her vantage point at Harvard, where I think she now teaches and she lives part of the year in the United States. This just looked to her like an American election. She said what she saw was one party outspending the other party in the key constituencies that matter, because the Labour vote share went up in safe Labour seats, so that this time actually the distribution of votes looks different in that Labour's been piling them up in safe seats. Labour got hammered by the Tories in about the 100 seats that mattered. And the Tories did vastly outspend them under the radar, not being picked up by the national polls, but 
very, very targeted campaigning. And I don't think over in the course of this podcast, we've talked enough about that, the way in which, and this is a lesson from American politics, it's actually a lesson from the Bush years of Republican politics, targeted campaigning, not national campaigning, is how you win fragmented elections. Chris, should we have picked up on that sooner? Yes, I think we should have done. And like Finbar, I got the outcome, I predicted the outcome of this election uh, completely wrong. And I need to think about um, some of the mistakes I made. And one of them was that when David Cameron was campaigning in Yeovil, where there was a Liberal Democrat majority of 10,000, that's David Law's seat, that seemed to me the sign of a campaign that had no idea what it was doing. You don't try to grab seats with majorities of that size. Now, as it turns out, they knew exactly what they were doing. Law's seat was there for the taking, and they realized that the Liberal Democrat vote was extremely soft. A lot of us thought that the Liberal Democrat vote would collapse nationwide, but that they'd hold on in a number of, in a significantly larger number of their seats than they managed to do. I think it was Tim Farron who got cheers at conference a few years ago by saying that Liberal Democrat MPs are like cockroaches, they're impossible to get rid of. But one by one, they were all swept away. John Hemming in Birmingham Yardley by Labour, Julian Huppert here in Cambridge by Labour, and then the Conservatives sweeping the southwest. Completely. I mean, Labour has been destroyed in its heartland. The Liberal Democrats have been destroyed in their heartland. I saw a claim online, I don't know if it's true, that this is the first general election since 1679 that there hasn't been a Whig, a Liberal or a Liberal Democrat returned for the southwest. That's an astonishing fact. Helen, you said that there was obviously more than one election going on here. There's an election in England, there's an election in Scotland. There was also an election in Wales. And I think to a certain extent, there was also an election in London. London wasn't quite as big an outlier this time as it was in 2010, where it did move in entirely the opposite direction. The Labour vote share went up in London when it went down everywhere else. But there is a question here about whether London itself is a separate electoral landscape for the parties. It may not matter. It's not maybe not big enough to matter, but it's probably a problem for Labour going forward to think about how to balance its appeal in London with its appeal everywhere else. I think it's a very big problem for Labour in this one respect is is that 48% of Labour Party members are in London. They're about to have an elevated role in the Labour leadership election that is taking place. They live in the part of the country where Labour has less of a problem now than anywhere else. Last time it was London and Scotland. This time Labour's in a disastrous position in Scotland. So you have the the part of the the country where Labour least needs to ask itself questions about what's going on that's going to have a disproportionate say in what the outcome of the Labour leadership election is going to be. I think in in terms of Wales, what was interesting is is that in many ways it behaves really rather like England did. And in that sense, if what was at issue was in part who's going to have influence at Westminster in terms of the different component parts of the union, the Welsh sided more with the English than they did with the Scottish. And Cameron picked up on this in that speech that he made at Conservative Central Office that someone recorded on their phone, which was a little glimpse of what he's like behind the scenes. Um, and he was pretty cock-a-hoop the sweetest victory, as he called it. And he gave a litany of the reasons why. It included holding on in Scotland, but he sounded particularly pleased when he said making progress in Wales, which most people think of just an area where the Tories have given up entirely. They haven't given up on Wales. It, I think as a result of this election, they probably haven't given up on anything in this country. The Conservatives now are the only party who look like over the next election cycle and maybe a few more, they're the only party who could get a majority on their own. And this, for me, may be one of the crucial things coming out of the election. Is Labour now unable to put together any sort of strategy that gets them close to a majority if they can get the vote turned out? Or do they have to accept that they're a party that has to go into coalition with other left-leaning parties to get things to happen? And for me, that would be one of the reasons why Cameron would be so happy, because of his strength in England, because of the way in which they... Uh, managed to hold on to votes and increase in some areas in Wales, they are a party who can form a majority and nobody else can. Thanks to Helen, Finbar and Chris. We hosted a breakfast last Friday morning for guests on the podcast along with students here in Cambridge. I caught up with a few people we've spoken to previously to get their take on what had just happened. First, Cleo Newton, a first-year politics student who worked for the successful Labour campaign in Cambridge, where the sitting Lib Dem MP, like so many of his party, was defeated. Despite Labour's success locally, how was Cleo feeling about the national result in her first election? If, if it's possible for traumatised to be an understatement, then that's done it, because the way that the night panned out, we had 
defeat after defeat, after tears, after misery, after agony, after talk of factions and separation and a broken Labour movement um, and into a final 6am, 7am spark of bliss of hearing Daniel being elected and still after, even after that amazing experience, he's this is his fifth time <laughs> trying and this probably would have been it if he hadn't got elected so that was quite something but there were elements of the Labour Labour campaign that I really didn't like but went along with i.e. like our immigration stance um, and our lack like our lack of passion to kind of go for nationalisation rather you know and, and said kind of hinting at it very slightly but being afraid of using the word itself and kind of the skating around and trying to adhere to the mood of the electorate we've seen hasn't worked. I mean, either Labour will move significantly rightwards and try and appeal to this, you know, sweeping um, majority that Cameron's managed to um, obtain, or um, Labour become a Michael Foote, kind of, I don't know, become a, a ideological kind of left-wing movement which is um, thorough to the bone but unelectable and probably will be just as disparate as then so i i'm terrified i'm scared i'm feeling very down but i also have hope that the people that i was working with and the the person that we managed to elect for now we all we all share the same values and we managed to keep the campaign going and show cambridge at least kind of the right way to vote (laughs) i also spoke to the historian of scotland claire jackson In the light of the astonishing success of the SNP, I asked her what she thought the future held for Scotland and the Union. The clarity of the message coming actually from all four parts of the United Kingdom, uh, from Scotland under the SNP, from Labour, which has the the Labour that has held up in Wales, but from England, from the Conservatives and and different dynamics in Northern Ireland. Um, You know, this idea that last year's referendum was a one-off that would seal this issue is is clearly wrong Um, I think obviously the first um, issues to address which will not leave the agenda particularly there will be Holyrood elections soon as well uh, will be what kind of devolution and what what ways that can be extended and strengthened but then the impact that that has on the rest of the UK as well as addressing quite, quite serious concerns I think across the UK about notions of legitimacy Finally, I talked again to John Norton, who spoke with us in early March about technology and surveillance. Theresa May had just announced on election night that as returning Home Secretary, her first wish was to push through the surveillance powers for the police and the secret services that she'd been denied by having to work with the Liberal Democrats in coalition. How did John feel about that? Welcome to the national security state. And, and of course, it's very significant that that was what she chose as her priority. I mean, I'm amazed by that, but that's what she chose. Um, there, there is still a need in Britain for um, a progressive left of centre party. It is not the Labour Party led by, by Miliband. Um, parts of it were the, the Liberal Democrat Party led by Nick Clegg for the time being. Um, Bits of it have flaked off to the Greens. They have, yes. A big chunk of it's gone to the SNP in Scotland. Not a big chunk in the national share of the vote, but in Scotland, a massive chunk. But but what has to happen now is some kind of realignment um, and the the emergence of some kind of progressive left or centre party. That's the only option. Um, And, of course, the Ormonds are not (laughs) very promising. Um, The other thing, of course, is that um, Britain clearly needs a new electoral system, but isn't going to get that either. I mean, from that point of view, it's difficult not to be depressed. Now to my conversation with Chris Hume, who served as Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change until his resignation in 2012. He was also one of the Liberal Democrats who was instrumental in putting together the coalition with the Conservatives. I started by asking him how shocked he had been by the result. Was he, like his former leader, Paddy Ashdown, tempted to eat his hat on election night? No, because polls do get things wrong. But I was certainly surprised to see how different the exit poll was to all the run-up of the polling beforehand. And I can't think of another example except possibly 
1992 when the whole of the polling universe, including all the different methodologies, internet and telephone, seems to have been so universally wrong. Because it was surprising that the telephone polls, which did call it right, a few of their, what were called at the time rogue polls, a couple of weeks before, for instance, ICM had the right result, one of their polls, even the telephone polls caught up with the online polls at yep. the end, so the ICM's final poll put Labour ahead. It's so extraordinary. I think it, there may be something going on in the pollsters of groupthink, because you can, of course, adjust polls. Uh, and they don't want to be waiting. the outlier. Or, or if they do want to be the outlier, they don't want to be the outlier by very much. You see the same thing with economic forecasting. Uh, there isn't a great premium to being wackily off the consensus. There may be a premium if you think that things are going to be much worse or much better. And I used to do economic forecasting. There may be a premium to being just a little bit more optimistic than the consensus, a little bit more pessimistic than consensus. But if you're too far away from the consensus, then people tend to think that you're a bit mad. So uh, there is a sort of groupthink process which may have been in, may have been there with the pollsters. So it was a disastrous result for many people, um, the Labour Party, but also perhaps even more so for the Lib Dems. Uh, you have eight seats. And a lot of people have pointed out that Labour have been destroyed in their heartland. But the Lib Dems also, in a sense, have been destroyed in their heartland in that I don't think even the worst forecast predicted no seats in the southwest, mm. which has not always been your heartland in the same way that Scotland wasn't always Labour's heartland, but for the last 30 or 40 years has been the basis of a lot of your support. Did that surprise you? I mean, could, could anyone have foreseen the ways in which the Tory party were going to defeat you in seat after seat where they were your main rivals? I think that uh, those of us who had suspicions that the Tory party uh, wanted to destroy the Liberal Democrats, I'm not sure to what extent Nick and his close friends actually ever believed that. I became totally convinced of that from the point at which they having insisted that Nick Clegg compromise on student tuition fees as part of the coalition agreement, uh, then proceeded to personally attack him during the AV referendum campaign uh, for being somebody who was untrustworthy because he'd compromised on student tuition fees. And I thought that was a fairly clear indication that they uh, had a very limited view of uh, the extent to which they were prepared to put Lib Dem interests uh, anywhere near... uh, an objective. So I think the Tories did. Uh, they they had um, a pretty fundamental objective. Uh, they were very much more transactional about the coalition, I think, than the Liberal Democrats should. Uh, the Liberal Democrats were. And Can you say just a little bit about what you mean by that? So when you say they were more transactional, I, I think mean- that uh, they. Uh, whoever it was who once described the Conservative Party as an organised hypocrisy, I think, is absolutely right. And one of the things that the Tory party does brilliantly is uh, hypocrisy and the ability to look friendly and look as if uh, they are trying to rub along uh, with you while at the same time uh, busily preparing the ground for your murder uh, is is actually, I think, something that um, uh, you shouldn't underestimate. I think the Tory party has a lot of practice at that. So should you have known that? You were involved in the coalition negotiations after 2010. Mm. You were in the cabinet. Should the Lib Dems have realised that and thought in those terms when you were negotiating? Because one of the questions people are asking, and again, it's with the benefit of hindsight, Mm. is shouldn't the Lib Dems have understood that a coalition, in a sense, is only going to work if it also involves some kind of electoral pact, as some coalitions in the past have done? The one thing that is very dangerous is to go into a coalition without some kind of arrangement as to what happens when you face the next election afterwards. I'm not sure I would say that that was the key lesson at all. Uh, I don't think electoral pact was necessary. I think it was a calculated gamble that we would be able to get enough constitutional reform to shore up the basis of the party. Now, obviously, that would mean, uh, in an ideal world, winning the alternative vote referendum, which didn't happen. But as a fallback, it would have meant proportional representation for the House of Lords, which also didn't happen. And I think that surprised us a lot, because the modus operandi in the coalition negotiations was that anything which had been in each party's manifesto uh, 
was not argued about in the negotiations. It went directly into the coalition agreement. And the Conservative manifesto had said that they were in favour of uh, an elected uh, House of Lords, that they would work for an elected House of Lords. And so that actually went straight into the coalition agreement, and we assumed that it wasn't uh, a matter of great uh, controversy. However, of course, when that came up in the House of Commons, uh, there was a Conservative rebellion of more than, I think, 90 MPs against uh, a directly elected House of Lords, and that fell. And so our fallback position of, uh, strategically as a party uh, was also uh, destroyed. And it was quite understandable in those circumstances, and I argued for it myself, that we were certainly not going to give the Conservatives the boundary revisions, uh, given that they had just axed uh, our fallback on constitutional reform, which was uh, the PR for the House of Lords. Uh, so I think that it was a slightly more complex. You didn't need to have an electoral pact, but you needed to have some fair assurance that the party's position would be uh, would have a safety net. In some senses, therefore, you were you as a party, not you personally, were naive about what might happen after 2010, because after all. Your line of defence was you wouldn't allow the boundary changes to go through, which the Tories desperately wanted. But we now have a result after 2015 where they're going to get that anyway because yeah. they've won an overall majority. And your party is effectively in kind of in ruin. That's certainly true. It's an appalling result. And, it, and from the point of view of my uh, party, the, the, the uh, result it takes us back to a worse position than we were in when I fought my first election for Islington Borough Council in the 1992 local council elections. So it is truly uh, an appalling uh, result. But I don't think it follows that this was all a giant planned conspiracy. I, don't, I think that Cameron would have liked to have delivered on the House of Lords. And I think there was a genuine backbench uh, rebellion. And I think that that rebellion, uh, a lot of the people who voted to get rid of the House of Lords, uh, to keep the House of Lords as it was uh, on the Tory side, uh, actually... Uh, subsequently regretted it when they realised that they were then going to lose the boundary revisions. Uh, and, of course, uh, we couldn't rely on the Labour Party because rather like Cameron's short-term tactical use of Scottish nationalism to discipline uh, Tory voters in the general election, uh, the Labour Party decided it would prefer to tactically embarrass uh, the coalition rather than do something which it had always supported, which was to introduce it, or recently supported anyway, including in Jack Straw's proposals, introduce a directly elected House of Lords. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a great planned conspiracy. I think it was more of a cock-up, but it was certainly a cock-up that left us exceptionally weak uh, and left us without that fallback position. And therefore, given the pitiless nature of uh, first-past-the-post when you begin to get down to the level of support that the Liberal, Dem Liberal Democrats were at in the run-up to the general election, it wasn't wildly surprising that we were unable to hold uh, as many seats as we did. There was always a hope that there, there would be a uh, last-minute uh, feeling that it was sensible to have some insurance policy against either a Labour or Conservative overall majority. But the messaging on that, uh, I think, was very poor indeed. And I think the Liberal Democrat campaign uh, was fundamentally mistaken in the way it pitched its messages. Uh, you cannot appeal to the voters by basically going to them and saying, well, you have a choice of... Uh, gin or whiskey, and we're going to be the mixer to dilute whichever one it is. If you hate whiskey, as an awful lot of Conservative supporters hate the Labour Party, then offering to merely dilute it isn't actually going to encourage you to vote Lib Dem, it's going to encourage you to vote uh, for the Conservatives. And similarly, if you hate uh, the Labour Party, uh, or you hate the Conservative Party, then, then it'll, the, the, it will work in the other way. So merely offering to act as a mixer in the drink uh, is in itself a weak message. But given the nature of party discipline of the Labour and 
conservative parties for their own supporters, which relies so much on negative feelings of fear of the other. I think it was an exceptionally silly and dangerous uh, campaign message to adopt. And I wrote that actually more than a year ahead in the uh, in a column in the Guardian, and tried to explain in words of one syllable why. Uh, this offer of moderating the Conservative and the Labour Party would not work as an electoral strategy. And a lot of the people in the Liberal Democrats over the years who have been most successful in winning, uh, I know, share that view, including Lord Renard. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And Charles Kennedy, who... Again, in retrospect now, looks like the Liberal Democrat leader who has been most successful in reaching out to a set of voters who wanted to vote Liberal Democrat for some positive reasons, although the Iraq war and so on played a part in that. How would you have fought a campaign? I mean, what would the message have been? Well, all of our success. The positive message, the kind of, we're our, not, not this, not that, we are what? All of our relatively successful uh, campaigns have had a positive message, usually around some quite simple proposal. So, for example, Paddy Ashdown had a penny on income tax for education, uh, which was simply saying, you know, we're the party that's going to really look after the education system. Uh, with uh, in the 2010 election, we had the we actually invented what has now been taken on by the Tories, which was raising the income tax thresholds and paying for it by putting up. Uh, sin taxes on environmental bads uh, and that uh, uh, was a, a very I think successful message but of course the Tories also were took that. Uh, they dropped all their nonsense about inheritance tax and they dropped their previous stress on the basic rate and took the raising of the threshold as their thing. So we had to have something new and different uh, in this campaign. And frankly, it can be quite narrow. It can be something like the, the, the stress on education. Uh, I think the big thing, the sleeping issue in British politics at the moment, where actually the Liberal Democrats have a lot to say, is housing. Uh, I think the, 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 there is a, a program which could easily be a sort of five-point program to make sure that young people can actually have decent homes, whether they are buying them or whether they're renting them. Uh, and we could have put that together, and I think that would be much more attractive than and much more positive than merely saying, we're going to split the difference and we're going to make sure that you don't have a nasty Labour Party or a nasty Conservative Party. I want to ask you one question about the Labour Party in the light of this result. As you said, the Labour Party made a tactical choice to oppose House of Lords reform in order to embarrass the government. And that turns out to have been a big mistake because they are no better off than they would have been if they'd chosen to support it. They may be worse off. What chances do you think there are that the Labour Party will come to the view that it needs to give up on the idea that it's going to, at some point in the near future, form another majority government and get its own way? And actually, it does need to work with the other parties of the left or the centre-left, even if it's only on something like House of Lords reform, some form of electoral reform, because it still seems completely committed to the idea that sometime our turn will come again. But this election result looks to me like it makes it quite hard to imagine the circumstances in which its turn is going to come again. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think I lived through enough elections uh, and had enough uh, experience of eminent um, uh, political scientists predicting that uh, Labour could not possibly ever win a majority again, including, I remember, Professor Ivor Crewe in the wake of the 1992 election. And, of course, 1997, they went on to win but just to, absolutely massively. Just so to, so I, don't think, I don't think I would do that. I think that there is another reason, frankly why Labour have to rethink their whole attitude here. And that is partly the union. If the Labour Party is genuinely a unionist party, then the only way to save 
the union sensibly is to make sure that Scotland is represented fairly in its opinions, not by 58 SNP MPs, you know, all but three, 56 SNP MPs, all but three of the total number of Scottish MPs uh, for just half the vote. Uh, and you know this is the this is the sort of distortion which we have put up with in the rest of uh, the country for a very long time. So you have a handful of Labour MPs elected for this vast, the biggest region in the country, which is the southeast. Even though Labour repeatedly get more than twenty percent of the vote in the southeast, so not surprisingly, you have a, a fantastic distortion that is now really coming home to roost in Scotland because of the new politics of identity uh, faced with what has happened uh, in uh, the fall in real incomes and the squeeze that people have felt. So Labour have to really face up to this. Are they unionists? That's one point. The other point is it's it's actually very basic to their own credibility for a lot of people who look at this election result and see, for example, the SNP getting a multiple of the seats uh, of UKIP, even though UKIP have got fewer votes than uh, far more votes than the SNP. Uh, indeed, a multiple of the seats of the Liberal Democrats, even though the Liberal Democrats have got far more votes. So uh, there is a fundamental issue of fairness here, and if. If the core value of any progressive party is fairness, if it's about fighting for a fairer society, then to say, well, we're going to apply fairness absolutely everywhere on the economy. Oh, but not on politics. No, no, politics, we're going to just glide over that because actually fairness should be reserved for other people. It doesn't have to apply to us. Now, I think that's a real problem for any progressive party, and I think the Labour Party needs to confront it there as well. So there are some very there are some very big reasons why, if the Labour Party wants to, I think, do the progressive agenda, whether it's with other parties or not, it has to say, we're going to reform the the electoral system, we're going to reform the constitution, we're going to make Britain a society which looks much more like other European societies, where generally you do have more strands of political opinion. You probably end up having four broad political families within the UK, as you do in many other European countries. You have the conservative Christian Democrat tradition, you have the liberal tradition, you have the socialist uh, tradition, and you have the Greens. Uh, And we may have all four. But there is a multi-party system struggling to get out of the UK. Uh, and I don't think it's uh, sensible for the Labour Party to be trying to suppress it. So I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not going to ask you, because I think it's too complicated to work out how you could get from here to electoral reform under this government. But I do want to ask it's you... complicated. I, I, do, I just don't think under this government... It's going to happen, OK. Happen. Right, so it's not, uh, it's it's not complicated, that. it's a fantasy. Um, but so, but so, I, do think, I do think it's very important to remember in this whole debate... Uh, the government has done the usual trick that majority governments do, and they come and say, we now have a mandate. We have a mandate for doing everything that we promised. Well, this government has actually only got 37% of the vote, let alone of the voters of the electorate. It's only 37% of the vote. So that actually means that 63% of people who went in to cast a ballot in the general election did not want the Conservatives, despite the fear campaign that they ran classic Somebody should be running, uh, should be writing a, uh, a thesis about the use of fear in disciplining conservative voters. I'm sure they uh, have already, because, and they're going to write another one. There are a lot of a lot of good examples going back to the Zinoviev letter. But the House of Lords hasn't been reformed, so its legitimacy, to use that word, is questionable yeah. in being a site of opposition for a popularly elected government, even if it was only on 37 percent of the vote. Mm. So where do you see? Where is you rolled your eyes when I mentioned Tory backbenchers as a source of opposition? Well, I Where's wonder, the opposition going to come from to this government? Well, I, I think the the, the it, it will depend a lot on what 
the government does and how what sort of mistakes it makes. But the opposition could come from all sorts of unexpected places. And if it does look as if the government is really playing fast and loose with our European Union membership, then part of the opposition is likely to come from within the Conservative coalition, which is business. I mean, the Financial Times has been going into apoplexy over the last few weeks with stories showing 80% of business executives want us to stay in the European Union. And that is a very direct threat to the economy as well. So a lot of the, uh, a very substantial part of what has traditionally been the Conservative coalition is deeply worried about the thrust uh, of policy under David Cameron, the risks which he's running in having a referendum. And whatever uh, the assurances may be privately about how the referendum can be won and it's all going to be done and hunky-dory, and that may be the base case, but this is a very serious thing to be risking, even a 10% chance that it could go horribly wrong, as most people in business know. So I think uh, there will be surprising opposition from uh, different places. And it comes back to the point that I was really making about the Labour Party um, deciding to go for its short-term tactical interest and embarrassing uh, the coalition over House of Lords reform. We have another example here uh, on Europe where the Tories are threatening the really fundamental interests of some of their coalition by playing with the fire of a European Union uh, referendum in exactly the same way as they've done uh, the same thing over the Union with the Scottish Nationalists so that they have stoked up English fear of the impact of uh, the SNP. Uh, and as a result, of course, they completely played to the SNP north of the border. Uh, and the ideal scenario for both Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon uh, is to have a Conservative government in London uh, and to have the sort of representation that the SNP has north of the border and to pick a lot of monstrous fights which will gradually stoke up support for independence. So you've had, I'm afraid, successively a series of examples of parties putting short-term tactical interest ahead of what is even a meant to be a very fundamental objective of their own party. In the Labour Party's case, the reform of the Lords, almost exactly the same proposals that Jack Straw put forward. In the Conservative Party case, the Union. This is meant to be the Conservative and Unionist Party, after all, and yet they're doing exactly the same game that they did in the run-up to the First World War with the uh, Liberal government after 1910 and the dalliance with Sir Edward Carson, who was arguing Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. Right. Uh, and, you know, this is, uh, I'm afraid, very irresponsible. Um, and I think that David Cameron will come to regret it. Uh, and I think that uh, therefore the Conservatives really are in a position which a lot of parties get themselves into, uh, which is careful what you wish for. They've had a majority and they've now got to deliver on what is probably an impossible programme. Thanks to Chris Hune, bearing up manfully. Now back to our news panel. Christian was dismissive of the idea that this result might be terminal for Labour, saying he'd heard that kind of talk before back in 1992, just before the dawn of the Blair hegemony. My own view is that this election has been far worse for Labour than what happened in 1992, not just because of the wipeout in Scotland. Labour made almost no progress in England, and it lost a number of senior figures from the Commons, including Ed Balls. The recently announced shadow cabinet looks pretty lightweight to me compared to the Tory front bench. Chris, how bad do you think this really is for Labour? I think it's a terrible outcome for the Labour Party. Uh, I think you're right, it's not 1992. I think in some ways it's like 1935. Uh, the Labour government, the second Labour government was elected in 1929 and it fell from power in 1931 uh, in the context of the economic crisis. Uh, the national government came to power and was then triumphantly re-elected four years later. And I think that is a helpful comparison. It's a reminder that uh, it's a disastrous position to be in when you're the party in government when the economic crisis hits, and the party still has that albatross hanging around its neck. It failed to persuade uh, enough voters that it could be trusted with running the economy. Uh, but looking forward, I think that uh, the problems will pile up. The Conservatives will 
ram through their plans for redistricting, uh, maybe for reducing the number of MPs in the House of Commons. They'll create a new electoral system uh, that will be more favourable to uh, their re-election effort next time around. And if Labour's to win a majority in the House of Commons, it has to focus on the English seats. There's no prospect of a serious Labour revival in Scotland. And they made absolutely no progress in the English marginals in the election. By contrast, the Tory vote in a lot of the seats that they absolutely have to win, places like Stevenage, places like Loughborough, places like Swindon and Reading, it's the Tory vote that has hardened. That's an enormous electoral mountain to climb. Uh, I think the prospects for Labour are pretty bleak right now. And I think it's possible to overstate the extent to which George Osborne is the Machiavellian genius pulling the strings of British politics. But I don't think it's hard to overstate it by a lot. He gave an interview a while back, I think before even 2010, in which he described his political strategizing post the crash, the fact that Labour was there when all the plates hit the ground. And he said he had a series of choices as to what would be the wedge issue and the hook that he would try and get them on. And he was going to go with the deficit. And he was going to get them on that hook, and they would not be able to wriggle off it. And here we are, eight years, seven, eight years after the crash, and they're still wriggling on that hook. And, and his party, with his very plausible front man, David Cameron, um, has won an overall majority. And if I was Labour, again, one doesn't want to be too paranoid about these things, but I would assume that George Osborne has another set of plans and another set of hooks, or maybe one hook, that he wants to get them on over the course of this parliament. Finbar, am I, am I overstating the extent to which there is one strategic genius at work in British politics at the moment, and he is neither prime minister nor on the Labour side? Um, I think a a lot of people will try and claim credit for what happened. Uh, Linton Crosby will try and say that it was his genius. There will be other people in the background. But given the place of the deficit as a discussion and as an issue, given the way in which Miliband was constantly challenged about whether or not Labour had overspent and crashed the economy, it was the issue that seemed to really decide things in a fear mode for quite a lot of people. So the economy on one hand and uh, the SNP coming and raiding down from the north. And what Crosby did was he tied the two together. There is now evidence that in the campaign in the last two to three weeks, they realised that their absolute trump card was to connect up questions about economic competence and fear and fear of the SNP. Absolutely. And so on the back of that, you have to say that Osborne was at least one of the major, major players, if not the dominant figure in putting together that strategy. Where I'd go to now, though, having praised him for his ability to be strategic in that election is to say, okay, now you have to actually implement that manifesto you just laid on the table. And actually, my guess, and it's a guess, is that they didn't think that they would get a majority, and they didn't think they'd have to implement that manifesto and all the other promises that came with it. And that's actually going to put them in a very, very difficult position going forward. Helen, you mentioned earlier that Labour is now facing a leadership election, and there are problems in how that election is going to be conducted. The, the unions won't dominate it in quite the way they did last time, but there's already talk about how the unions are planning to ensure that their members get a vote in this election. It's also skewed towards London. It's probably going to take a long time. The latest information that we have is that the result probably won't be known until October. And some people are saying, well, this is crucial for the Labour Party. It needs to take time and use a leadership election to decide what its strategy is going to be, what its message is going to be, what its leader is going to be. And they point to the long election, the long process after 2005, when David Cameron was finally elected as leader of the Conservative Party, and Michael Howard stayed on in that case to allow it to happen. I think this is a completely misleading comparison, because that election, the Tory leadership election, was set up by Michael Howard to produce a particular result, the election of either David Cameron or George Osborne. All the other elections where a party has had a free and open, frank discussion, and as people have tried to appeal to the membership and the membership have expressed their preferences, have been a disaster. When the Tories did it without a plan, they got Ian Duncan Smith. When the Lib Dems did it, they got Nick Clegg. And when Labour did it, they got Ed Miliband. I'm really worried for the Labour Party that the idea that a leadership election, a free and frank discussion of people pitching to the members is a way to rethink their strategy is going to produce another very bad outcome for them. I think that's absolutely right. But I think in some sense, the, the problem goes deeper in that even if you had a much better 
range of people to choose from as the next Labour leader, it would still be very difficult to know what to do. Labour don't have a problem at the moment, a problem solvable. They have a predicament, and the predicament is they've got to do try to do contradictory things. I think it's actually too hard for them to give up on Scotland altogether. I don't think that the internal dynamics of the Labour Party is really going to allow that to happen, and it also risks then what's happening in Scotland bleeding through UKIP into northern parts of England because clearly there is considerable disaffection with the old Labour core vote with the Westminster Metropolitan Labour Party. At the same time, they've got to do much better and they've particularly got to do much better in the Midlands, which is the place where not a single gain was made. Labour did make some gains on those Conservative seats. Chester was an interesting example because there was no Green candidate and that seemed to then allow Labour to hold on. Yet it's very difficult to see how you're going to find a Labour leader that's going to work in the Midlands and is simultaneously going to do anything to help in, in, in Scotland. So in some sense, they've, they've, they've got to buy time and, and allow certain things of those dynamics that are at work to change and one of them may be what happens to UKIP over the next few years particularly in relation to the referendum so in this sense this leader in one sense it might not matter who it is because it's going to be pretty temporary and it's just got to get by until some of the plates start to move again. And as Helen mentioned there Chris the green vote did make a difference in some places the progressive left or centre left is fractured Um, some people have gone green some people are still clinging on to the Lib Dems some people, quite a few people are still Labour. Does Labour need to think about coalitions, alliances, at least links between the different parts of the left in British politics in a way that it hasn't in the past because it has always stuck to its mantra, which is it is a party which is about single party majority rule in the House of Commons because that's the way you get socialism. Now, they've given up on socialism. Should they also give up on majority rule? I don't think the challenge coming from Uh, centre-left voters voting for the Greens or the Liberal Democrats is especially important in the grand scheme of things. The Greens will be an issue in a very small number of university seats or idiosyncratic places like Brighton Pavilion, Uh, but they'll never win more than a handful of seats. I think the number of seats where the Green vote was greater than the margin between the Labour and the Conservatives is pretty small this time round. Similarly, we've seen the Liberal Democrat vote is very soft, and it doesn't look to me as if there's going to be the kind of Liberal Democratic revival that will mean the the Liberals get in the way of a straight fight between the Conservatives and the Labour Party in a lot of the English marginals. The enormous problem, though, is Scotland. It will be very difficult for Labour to win a majority of seats in England if they remain as uncompetitive in Scotland as they are at the moment. And the problem, as we've seen, is that the Conservatives are more than happy to capitalise on the threat of a, what they call the coalition of chaos, some kind of deal or some kind of arrangement between Labour and the Scottish Nationalists. So I think this is another area where the where the Labour Party has a severe problem. Um, all the culture of the party, as you say, is towards presenting it as a government-in-waiting, as a majority party. I'm not so sure uh, there's much to be gained by a strategy of pluralism or openness towards other parts of the uh, centre-left. This podcast is not just about this election. We don't want to give the impression that we were talking about an election, the election happened, and then politics stops for another few years because politics is ongoing even today. And things will happen that will change all the things that we're talking about now. And over the next few weeks, we'll talk about some of the things that are coming up, including the European election and other things. But Finbar, what's your sense of the thing that the Conservative Party are now themselves most worried about. They'll they'll know that they shouldn't be complacent. They shouldn't assume they're entering on a period of unchallenged rule. Um, Where are their fears, do you think? What is the thing that they most fear? Because we know that they're a ruthless party and they do think very hard about the things that they should worry about. Someone at the heart of the Conservative Party will now be drawing up a list for David Cameron of the things that could destroy him. Mm -hmm. What do you think they are? There, for me, there are three things. Uh, that their image of economic competence will be ruined by the fact that they won't be able to meet their targets of having no deficit uh, in two years, given all the other promises that have been made and given where the economy seems to be heading. So that's the first one. The second is what is going to happen over the referendum, because it fundamentally changes the nature of politics in this country and across Europe. And the third then is obviously Scotland. So as you say, we're going to talk about a number of these things, but putting those together, three years from now, 
if there is still a deficit, if we have voted to leave Europe and Scotland is holding another independence referendum on the back of a very strong 2016 Scottish elections, the Conservatives might be looking to be in a very different position. Indeed. And finally, Helen, we've also talked in the context of this podcast about the fact that it's very easy to get parochial and insular and think that British politics exists in some kind of bubble. There are all sorts of things going on out there, including imminently perhaps Greek default on its debt. Um, What's your sense over, say, the next six months to a year that the Tory party are most worried about in the things that they absolutely cannot control? Not the Tory party, the government. I think that um, two things. One is Greek exit and what happens to that. But I'm not sure that that is necessarily works to their disadvantage. What that will do, though, is is to put the EU referendum in a different light than what will happen if the EU referendum takes place with the EU existing in its present structure, including the Greece in the Eurozone and Greece uh, in the EU. I think the other thing, though, that's not being talked about enough is, is that somehow in the next few years, Britain has to unravel its quantitative easing. And it has to do it in a context in which other states are engaging in quantitative easing. And it's going to have huge consequences for sterling. And sterling, as we know, has got a history of causing a lot of problems for governments of all political parties. And the Conservatives are simply not going to be exempt from this. In one sense, it's not going to be the usual sterling crisis. It may well actually be a huge appreciation of sterling, which is exactly what caused the Conservatives so much damage in the early Thatcher years. So I think that there's an economic crisis sitting out there waiting, waiting to happen. Thanks, as always, to Helen Finbar and Chris, to our special guest, Chris Hune, and to our production team of Hannah Critchlow, Francis Durnley and Lizzie Presser. We promised at the start of this podcast that we would keep going until Britain has a new government, however long that took. Well, as it turns out, it didn't take very long. But we still have plenty more things we want to discuss, so we'll be with you for the next few weeks to talk about what this result means for Britain and the wider world. Do please join us again next time. My name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge University podcast, Election. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>